Let's pray to the Lord again. Let's pray that he would bless the word now as it comes to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask now even more of you. Uh, We ask that you would take your word and plant it deep in us. Father, help us to do what we heard Ryan read earlier, to receive the implanted word in our hearts and to receive it in meekness. Help us to do that. Father, we pray that you would unfold your words to us and that in the unfolding of them we would get light, we would see life more clearly, that we'd also have light and heat, that we'd have motivation and strength to obey, and that you would impart understanding to us who are are so simple. We're so simple-minded, Lord, so finite. Help us. Unfold your word to us, please. Show us more of your son, Christ, and why he came, and how we can reflect his glory. We ask you to do a work now by your word. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you rather learn by your own mistakes or by the mistakes of others? Pretty simple question, right? Would you rather learn by your own mistakes or by the mistakes of others? I saw one quote that talks about mistakes. I'm still trying to figure out if it's a good or bad quote. Let me read it to you. It's real short. Quote, I always learn from the mistakes of others who took my advice. I, I'm still thinking about that one. I always learn from the mistakes of others who took my advice. Um, whether it's in marriage or parenting or whether it's with plumbing in a church building or plumbing in your own house during a winter storm and icy temperatures, we will do well to have a posture of looking outside of ourselves and learning from others who have either made mistakes or gone down paths that we have not yet experienced. It's a wise thing to learn from others who have made mistakes so that you don't make them. And today we have the opportunity in God's word to learn from the mistakes of ancient Israel. Mistakes that they made several centuries ago that are still speaking and teaching us today. In fact, we know from Romans 15 verse 4, you may remember this verse, everything that was written in former days, when Paul wrote that he was meaning the Old Testament, Everything written in former days was written for our instruction. We have much to learn from the Old Testament, uh, the triumphs and the failures of God's people, and even to learn from God himself how he acts and moves and what he wants. I want to invite you today to peer in to a lawsuit that God brings against his people, a court case. He brings up their mistake, their sin, their failure, and what he does about it. And we can learn from it. So I want to invite you to turn to see what I mean in Micah chapter 6. Go to Micah chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seats near you, this would be page 779. 779. We're going to look at Micah 6, the first eight verses of the chapter. And our goal this morning is going to be, we want to watch for how did their walk with God go astray? What mistakes were they making? What were they not keeping on their heart and mind? And if we can learn from their mistakes, then we can actually keep our walk with God close to him and right with him in covenant faithfulness. Let's look at this this court case where God brings up their wrong. Micah 6, 1 through 8. Here's the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend 
with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We're after verse 8 today. Verse 8 is the destination of where we want to land and camp out a little bit longer than any of these other verses. But all the verses are important because they're driving to verse 8. I pray that you'll give your attention to God's word today because here we have great instruction for our walk with God. In fact, we have eight of them, eight lessons from this passage that help us walk with the Lord in humility and covenant faithfulness. And Israel at this time had let their covenant faithfulness, and by the way, covenant faithfulness is synonymous with walking humbly with God. Those are synonymous terms. But Israel had let their covenant faithfulness fall into grave neglect. Micah, who is the author of this book, is a prophet who is calling out their unfaithfulness, serving to bring God's judgment, but also at the same time hold out an offer of hope and repentance. And the whole book is is these twin themes of judgment and forgiveness throughout the whole book, all seven chapters. And Micah is prophesying these things during the reign of some Judean kings, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. If you know your Bible, you know that the book of Hosea and even the book of Isaiah are overlapping time periods with the book of Micah. So Micah wasn't the only one speaking these faithful things, but he was speaking them loud and clear. And Micah is urging and instructing the people here, even when it comes to bringing forth God's lawsuit in front of them. He catalogs their sins and calls them rightly to look at the Lord. Let's look at what Micah says and draw out these eight lessons for us that we can learn. The first lesson we can learn for our walks with the Lord and not make the mistakes Israel made, here's the first lesson. It's this. Don't be deceived. Your secret sins can never be truly hidden. First lesson, don't be deceived. Your secret sins can never truly be hidden. Where are we getting that from? Is that one of those preacher comments where you just throw something into the text and you hope nobody looks to see if it's really there? It's there. I want to show you. Let me show you how that lesson Israel had failed to see and remember, but, but we can learn from their mistake. Look with me again at verse 1. Here's where the court case opens. Look at verse 1, how it starts out. The lawsuit is in motion right here. It says, hear what the Lord says, arise, And then this is interesting. He doesn't just call Israel to come forth. He says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Isn't it interesting that God would call creation, very cosmos, into the picture? He calls his creation to serve as a witness in this court case. Don't be deceived thinking that your sin goes unseen because you are surrounded by the Lord's witnesses, the Lord's agents 
all the time. And what's interesting about this is if God wants to substantiate his claims against us for how we are living, he has every right to use other people, animals, creation, whatever he wants to substantiate the truth. Here's what I mean by that. You may think it's unfair for God to use the mountains and hills as a witness in a court case. And by the way, why would he even call them into a court case anyway? Well, consider at this time, Israel is going up to the mountains to worship on high places, to sacrifice to idols. They're doing things in the mountains where they think no one's up there to see them. They're doing things in the hills that shouldn't be told, sinful and wicked things. They're doing things where there are not other nations seeing it the moment it happens, but the hills and the mountains see it all. Because the very hills and mountains are the places where they are committing these heinous crimes. And if you think about the scriptures for a moment, larger than the book of Micah, God calling the hills and mountains to witness against their sins that they thought nobody was seeing is actually in line with what he's done throughout the scriptures. And what I mean by that is you remember Balaam and his talking donkey that rebuked him? The Lord uses a donkey. You remember Jonah and the fish? The Lord causes a fish to swallow him and vomit him up. Later in the book of Jonah, God appoints a plant to grow. The plant is his servant to teach Jonah a lesson. Then he appoints a worm to attack the plant. Then we fast forward to the book of Acts and we see in Acts chapter 12, verse 10, the iron bars of a gate swing open on their own accord because that's a servant of God's bidding. And then even Jesus in the gospels, do you remember what he said when, when there was praise offered to his name? If you don't praise me, even these very rocks and stones will cry out. Can you see how all throughout the scriptures, it's not just us as human beings that serve as witnesses and participants in the moral fabric of God's universe. Even beyond the hills and mountains, we know from the book of Revelation, what are angels doing right now? There are angels recording in books every thought and deed that you have. All of your actions, they're being recorded. And on the final day of judgment, books will be opened. So beyond just creation itself here on, on planet Earth, the angelic beings, they're also watching, and God himself is watching. This is why God is able to call the mountains and hills into this court case, because God sees and he knows what witnesses to call. Can you see how that fits lock and key with that idea that we should never be deceived that what we're doing, especially when we're sinning, is secret that nobody knows. There are always plenty of witnesses on the Lord's side to prove your guilt. So beware, don't be deceived that you can have some kind of private angle to your life that, that nobody sees and witnesses. The second lesson we learn that Israel failed to remember is this. Here's lesson number two for our walk with God. It's this. Repent because God is confronting sin, not as an if, but as a when. Repent because God is confronting sin, not as an if or a maybe or it might happen. Not an if, but a when. It will happen. We see this in verse 2. After God calls forth the mountains and hills to hear this indictment, he says, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. Have you considered that eventually God will deal with you? He's constantly at work in your life, either for judgment and discipline or for blessing. God's never neutral. He can't look at your life and think, you don't really matter. I'm not going to let my truth come to bear on you. And we see that from verse 2. Do you see where that lesson is coming from? Look at how verse 2 ends, how it finishes. He, meaning God, he will contend with Israel. 
This is a surety. God can't let it go. God's not going to just leave you alone in your sinning. It reminds me of a book I was reading uh, last week. I was reading a book on leadership by Coach John Wooden, who coached at UCLA. Uh, He won 10 national championships in a row. Phenomenal coach, basketball coach. And I noticed as I was reading his book on, on leadership, one of the things that was striking to me is in practice, he had a few pet peeves, if you will, that he would not let go. But they weren't just pet peeves. They were actually purposeful, aimed at sins that would undermine a player's life and performance. Those were some of the things he would not let go. He would contend with his players if he saw it. One of those things would be cussing. If a player cussed in practice, he wouldn't let it go. But he would always confront that player, either in practice or afterward. And here's why he had a no-cussing rule on his basketball team. Not because just the culture might think it's not good to cuss. Not because of merely his own morality. He didn't let his players cuss because he helped them see, if you are cussing, you're saying curse words, that means you don't have control of your tongue. And if you can't control your tongue, you can't control your body in the game. He says also, when you're cussing, it's usually because you're angry and you're not controlling your emotions. If you can't control your emotions now in practice, how are you going to control your emotions in the game? He had a great way of, of showing his players, there are certain things that if you do it, I will contend you. I will bring it up. I'll bring up what you're doing, and there'll be consequences if you think you can do it and just get away with it. God's the same way. But God doesn't have just one or two sins that he will contend. God is a holy God. And because he is good, he puts a target on sin whenever it occurs, whoever it occurs with, whoever's doing sin. And just like we see here, God is not maybe going to confront Israel. It's a win. He has an indictment against his people. Just because they're his people, they don't get off the hook. Now, I want to encourage you for a moment. The, the lessons that are coming later in this passage get more and more bright and hopeful and encouraging. You may feel like, wow, these lessons are kind of heavy on me right now. Well, that's lesson number two. Let's go to lesson number three. After this court case opens and we get to these legal proceedings that start to happen, here's lesson number three. Your sin reveals what you mistrust about God himself. Your sin reveals what you mistrust about God himself, his own character, his own person. What a lesson that can be to help our walk with the Lord. Our sin is not just something we do. It's something that reveals what we believe about God. We see that in verse 3. Put your eyes there on verse 3. This is the actual indictment, specific indictment that the Lord brings to Israel. And he doesn't say to Israel, you did this sin and that sin. Notice who the focus of the indictment is on. God includes himself. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God's indictment is showing that their obedience matters because it's not abstract rule-keeping. It's an expression of personally knowing God himself. When they sin and they walk away from him, he's saying, hello, what did I do to deserve that, Israel? What have I done to you? And then that second question, how have I wearied you? That's an interesting question because part of the sin in the life of Israel at this time, as they turn to other gods, we know implicitly from this verse is that Israel had grown weary with the Lord. Their sin showed that they didn't trust that God could be exciting and thrilling and, and enjoyable in a relationship with. They thought, no, God is a weary bore to us. It's interesting here because that word for wearied in the original language means to be utterly impatient and tired of something. So burdened, so exhausted that you don't even see the point of continuing. In fact, one of the places this word, this exact word shows up in the Old Testament, do you remember at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
when the men were trying to surround the house to attack Lot, the Lord struck men with blindness. And it says in the scriptures, as they were groping at the door, they wearied themselves. That's that same word here. And it's used in a similar way here as it is there, that somebody has just gotten tired of doing the same action. They don't see the point. They don't see the fruit and benefit of it. And what's so sad, Israel didn't realize that their choice of sin was declaring, God, you're boring, you're weary, you're not that interesting. So God says to them, how have I wearied you? I'm the creator. I created you. I created things out of nothing. I am brilliant beyond what you can imagine. I created pleasure itself. We could go down the list of all the reasons God is not boring. But consider whatever sin tempts you to be more interesting than God. Consider what that says about your belief of who God even is. It's an important lesson. There's a fourth lesson. Look at this fourth lesson beginning in verse 4. I'll read verse 4, and then then we'll cover the lesson here. Verse 4. After God gives these indictments, he continues the legal proceedings with evidence. And in verse 4, he says here, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So if we just pause right there, the Lord's saying, I've saved you, I've redeemed you, and I've provided faithful leadership for you. That question that the Lord just asked, how have I wearied you? What have I done to you? God's now laying out evidence in the case. Let me tell you the things I've done for you, just a few of them. They are perfect, spotless, righteous things that I've done for you. We continue on. After he's given Moses, Aaron, Miriam, the Lord continues by saying, O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him? What happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Not only did God save and redeem and give them leaders, but these reasons right there, God's showing that he gave protection and an intention to bless and prevent cursing to fall upon them and his intention to provide and renew them. Let's package this together. Here's the lesson. This is lesson number four. Redemptive history is always your friend. In your walk with God, consider the lesson that redemptive history is always your friend. And you may be wondering, how does that lesson fit with what we just read? Well, did you notice how everything God just said, the the reasons, the lessons he gave them, he was just drawing from the storehouses of redemptive history? Did you notice that? He was mentioning things in their past, One of the reasons redemptive history is always your friend, and you want to keep that lesson rehearsed in your heart as you walk with the Lord, is because rehearsing God's deeds in the past is a very helpful way to stir up your heart in the present to follow him. That's what God is doing. He's pointing to great actions in the past to wake them up in the present. It leads us to ask the question, which comes to your mind more? your own sin, your own plans for the week, or the ways God has been faithful in your life, and even before your life in history. God has given us so much to fill our minds with his faithfulness through the scriptures, through church history, through the history of brothers and sisters, even in this own church, if you ask them. Take the lesson to heart that Redemptive history, meaning the ways God has worked to redeem and be active in the world for his glory and goodness, that history, it's your friend. A little side note there, Shittim to Gilgal, for those unfamiliar with Israel's history, if you go back today in your scriptures and read Joshua 5, that'll take you right to that episode. It's a moment where Shittim was on one side of the Jordan River, Gilgal was on the other. They went from 
crossing the Jordan River in a miraculous way where the Lord stopped the water. And they came to Gilgal and they renewed the covenant with the Lord. I would encourage you to have such a knowledge of redemptive history that just mentioning place names like Shittim to Gilgal, you can quickly rehearse what the Lord did. I want to encourage you to be a student of your Bible, to know redemptive history, even the names of towns and cities and the sequence of events of geography so that you can think the way the Lord thinks. And when he says, hey, you remember from Shittim to Gilgal? You're tracking with what he's saying to stir up your heart, to walk with him. Well, the Lord lays out that indictment. The court case is proceeding. It's, it's just looking bad for Israel at this point because God keeps showing how he's perfectly in the right. They're in the wrong. We, we don't get all the details of the court case. It kind of speeds up at this point. We get to, we're nearing the corner here, the outcome of the case and how it's going to end. And this brings us to the, the fifth lesson it, it deals with this surprising outcome. The fifth lesson here for our walk with God that Israel forgot, fifth lesson is this. A works-based salvation is your perennial foe. A works-based salvation is your perennial foe. Perennial meaning it, it keeps coming back every year, constantly. So whether you know Christ as your Savior in this moment you do or you don't, whether you've been a Christian a long time, just as a part of our human nature, we will be tempted constantly to drift back to a heart posture and a, a mindset that we work and earn our place with the Lord. It's what we can do, achieve, or give to him, or if our good works are more than our bad works, that's what earns us a place with him. We see all of that right here, starting in verse 6 through verse 7. There's three questions that get raised as Israel is seeking desperately to be in the right. They know they're guilty in this court case. They're trying to then think, okay, how do we make restitution? How do we settle this dispute? But they're leaning on a works-based mentality. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? They were thinking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Then verse 7, they think, no, it's got to be more than that because we've really blown it. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Not just one sacrifice, but thousands. Let's multiply it. Thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. It starts to sound absurd here. There's no way they could get that and then give it to the Lord. And then it becomes even more absurd when they say, shall I give my firstborn? For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. Perhaps they got that idea from the nations around them, offering their children to pagan gods. The irony here is they didn't realize that in God's grand scheme of redemptive history, it's not them giving their firstborn. It's God giving his firstborn to save them. The lesson that we just mentioned, number five, a, a works-based salvation is our foe. Here's how that fits in here with all these questions of what can I bring the Lord and how can I please him? Here's how that fits in. Our walk with God has to be flowing from an awareness, awareness of where atonement comes from. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that you cannot walk closely with the Lord if you start your Christian life loving atonement, realizing God meets uh, atonement satisfaction for you on behalf in Christ, and then you're going to live the rest of your life and kind of drift back into this works-based thing to earn his favor. We have to always keep the atonement that he provides, that he accomplishes, the forgiveness that he offers that we don't earn as our constant drumbeat in our hearts. God is infinite and holy. Our sinful minds can't come up with a way to bridge the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness. What Israel didn't realize there in these questions they're asking is, 
Each question they ask in verse 6 and verse 7, all three of them, start with, shall I do this? Shall I do that? They start with a posture of, here's what I'm going to do for God to get real close to him and walk with him, to somehow suddenly become in a right relationship with him. They start from a posture of self. That is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God himself not you, with your help, sent his son to die on the cross in your place. In your place condemned he stood because just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, you were created to walk with him. But just like they rebelled against him, so too have we. And because God is good, holy, and right, he will punish sin. He will contend against it. And that's horrible news because That means we will spend an eternity in hell under God's judgment. Why? Because he's a holy and infinite God. If he wasn't an infinite God, then sure, the punishment could just be for a couple of days or a couple of years and it's over. But because he's an infinite God, to offend and rebel against him is an affront on infinite glory, which merits infinite punishment. But in love, God sent Christ to not make any of these mistakes Israel made, but to walk humbly with his Father and die on a cross for you and me. And as he was stretched out on the cross, do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They know not what they do. The cross is about forgiveness. Before Jesus died, he also uttered, it is finished. Meaning, The atonement that is needed to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God has been accomplished. And God raised Christ from the grave three days later to prove this is all true. And Christ reigns in heaven, calling all of us to walk with him and not reject covenant faithfulness. God is showing us that We can't make the mistake Israel made and think atonement is something we achieve or we bring. I'm so thankful that even before Micah prophesied this, way back in Genesis 15, 6, do you remember Abraham and his encounter with the Lord? When the Lord says to him, you believe the Lord, it's counted to you now as righteousness. The Lord counts us righteous. The Lord forgives us. The Lord makes atonement for us, not because of something we achieve, but because we believe his promises that he is the one only who can even take care of it. And when we believe and trust in that, that's where forgiveness comes. That's where reconciliation then happens, where we're united to Christ by faith. So I want to encourage you today, if you're looking at some of these lessons of walking with God that we've been saying, Here's the one you need to firstly perk up to if you're not a believer. You walking with the Lord doesn't start with you deciding, here's a list of things I'm going to start doing. You walking with the Lord starts with you realizing, if I'm going to be right with a holy God, he better provide atonement. Because all the ideas I could come up with to suddenly appease him for my sins, it's not going to work. Just like Israel's questions didn't work. The gospel is so good because God provides atonement. The Old Testament's clear about that. Even in Habakkuk, remember how it says the righteous shall live by faith? Not the righteous give more sacrifices than anybody else, and so they've earned favor with God. No, the righteous live by faith. Well, let's go to the sixth lesson. The sixth lesson in our walk with God. Israel forgot it. I don't want you to forget it. Here's the sixth lesson. God's word really is sufficient for you. God's word really is sufficient for you. We look to the self-revelation of his word to guide and equip us, lest we stumble and fall, because our finite minds neglect what's most pleasing to God. We see this in the passage when we have this beautiful turn. There's a wonderful turn that takes place at the end of verse 7 to the first four words of verse 8. 
Look at this beautiful turn. Those four words at the beginning of verse 8. He has told you. The scriptures are saying, stop coming up with ideas of how you're going to somehow impress God and invent some new way to be right with him. He has told you. God's word really is sufficient. He doesn't want us to wonder in vain speculation, to move into absurdities and endless questions. He has told you. Stop going down dead ends of your own mind. Just look to what he's told you, what he's revealed, his self-revelation. Here's where the, the court case turns in a very surprising way. We can get a lot of lessons out of this final verse, verse 8. There's three lessons. That was the first one. Lesson number six, God's word really is sufficient. We get that from he has told you. Here's where we're getting the good part. Here's the seventh lesson in our walk with God from verse 8. Your joy... And God's glory shouldn't be at odds. Israel forgot this big time. If you keep this lesson front and center on your heart, it will do wonders for your walk with the Lord. Lesson seven, your joy and God's glory shouldn't be at odds. We trust that God's declaration of what is good has layers of goodness. Because it both pleases God and it's good for others and it's good for you. We're getting all of that truth from verse 8 when he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. God's told you what's good and what's pleasing. It's up to us now if we're going to trust that what he says really is good for our lives. Really does hold forth joy for us. Don't believe the lie that obedience to God, it's not going to be as good as doing some other path. That word for good in verse 8, if you have kind of a surface level view of the word good, that word in verse 8 means a, a good, pleasant, agreeableness, a delight. Let me put it this way. When your power went out, or your water went out. Wasn't it good when the power came back on? Wasn't it good when the water came back on? Now, if I were to say that to you randomly any other month of the year, probably before this, it wouldn't have that same good ring to it that it does when you really know how much you need it and depend upon it daily. God here, when he says, he's told you, oh man, what is good, trust that it's so good, you, you don't want to live without this. That's the kind of goodness here. We don't ever have to feel like we're at a fork in the road between there's some good things and then there's some things God's asking me to do. That's a mirage, that's an illusion, that's a deception. There's no fork in the road. If there are things God is asking you to do, as much as short-term goodness might look good to not obey him, obey him. That's where the real goodness is. That's where the real joy is. That's where pleasing him is going to be found. Good for others, good for you. Let's move to the last lesson and close with lesson number eight. We get this from verse eight. We haven't even got to what verse eight is, right? He's told you what is good. Okay, well, what is it? What is it? Well, let me give you the lesson first for our walk with God. Here's lesson number eight right here. It's this. Your life is to be a 24-7 covenant relationship, not a transaction with God. Your life is to be a 24-7 covenant relationship, not a transaction with God. God's not just a God who wants your religious rituals as a transaction, as a bargaining chip, as a check box, okay, I did something on a Sunday, or I went to one Bible study in a week, okay, I'm good, my walk with God is done. We get all that from verse 8 here. Look at how verse 8 flows. He's told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? And by require, in English we use the word require in the original there, that's, that's the word, what does the Lord seek? What does the Lord seek of you? What is he after? Verse 8 says, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
You see, Israel made the mistake of thinking God was just after some animal sacrifices. God was after some one-time payments. Or, you know what, we, we could just, we don't have to always be living for God in a covenant relationship, do we? That's kind of boring. You remember that question God asked earlier in the passage, how have I wearied you? What God is saying here in verse 8 is stunning because he's not letting them offer a few sacrifices and be done with him. He's saying, what I want from you is a lifelong sacrifice. I want you to live your life as a living sacrifice. But it's still going to be good for you, even though you're dying to self. And he includes there justice, mercy, humility, walking with him. So this would go far beyond the the short circuit breaker in their brain of God wants animal sacrifices. He wants me to show up for a few feasts during the year. No, God wants 24-7 how they're living to be a walk with him. I like how Charles Spurgeon said of Micah 6, 8, he said, he's a pastor that lived uh, 1800s. Spurgeon said this about Micah 6, 8. He said, walk humbly with your God. This is the essence of the law. This is the Ten Commandments all wrapped up. This is an example of the law requirements first being met by God, and now the law requirements being worked in us. This is what it looks like. Spurgeon went on to say, it might be a kind of weather gauge to your communion with God, whether you're proud or humble, whether you're living out this verse. So don't look to, did I have perfect Sunday church attendance? Check, my walk with God must be perfect then. Don't look to, I read this many chapters of the Bible this week. Don't look to, okay, I can add it up. I had prayer time this many minutes this week. Don't think to yourself, you know what? I only listened to Christian music. I didn't listen to anything else but Christian music. I must be perfect in step with the Lord. Those things are all good, and we should strive to do things that are good. But what God is asking for here is a 24-7, every day of the week, the way we treat other people, the way we pursue justice and mercy and faithfulness and humility with him. This is not about just being a nice person. Covenant faithfulness is something with God. The verse, did you notice how it ends? It says, walk humbly with your God. You can't just be a nice person and think that's it. You have to walk with God as you're seeking to be a nice person. And you can't just say you're walking with God and not be a nice person. These things have to fit together for our lives to rightly reflect covenant faithfulness. And as we close, I just want to define justice, kindness, and humility. So that when we walk out of here today, we we have a little bit more of a concrete fabric feel to, okay, what does it mean to, to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God? So as we wrap up, This might be too much to take notes on. Uh, I'm going to talk real fast, but uh, we'll we'll try to pack it in here. These are some definitions. What is justice? Uh, Justice is making right decisions according to God's standards. The human race is impressed with wrong strategies, wrong remedies, wrong uses of, of power. Justice in the Bible means fulfilling mutual obligations in a manner consistent with God's moral law. Justice in the Bible on the part of individuals, I mean, we could talk about different levels of justice, but when it comes to you as an individual, justice involves honest and fair dealings with others, whether it's in a business setting where there's a formal contract or whether it's you keeping your word, justice involves honest and fair dealings faithfulness to others, not taking advantage of others, especially the poor or those with less power, less protection, those who are vulnerable, those who can easily be exploited, protecting the weak and vulnerable. You see how that's justice? Now, there's much more we could say in pressing that into application into your life, but that's what justice is. And in the book of Micah, Sadly, God's people were devising wickedness. 
In Micah 2, 2, we're told that they devised wickedness, they worked evil, they used their power to covet fields and seize fields and lands and take houses and inheritances away from people. They were being unjust. In Micah 3, 2, we were told, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? Justice deals so often, in fact, every time, with being able to discern what is right or wrong in this situation. Many people put the label of justice on what they're doing just because they want to do it. But in the Bible, justice always deals with what truly is right or wrong. In Micah 3.2, we're told, Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? You see, they were defrauding one another even in their business practices at this time. God says, do justice. Stop doing those things and bringing an animal sacrifice occasionally. Do justice. And God also says, love kindness. This is a hard word to translate. In Micah 6.8, when it says love kindness, kindness is that covenant word hesed. It's a word that is goodness, kindness, faithfulness, all bound up together. It's a, it's a word pregnant with meaning. Goodness, kindness, faithfulness, steadfast love. It's the very character of God that's revealed in Exodus 20 and Exodus 34. This creates a gentleness and warmth in our personal interactions with others. It makes mercy and actions of steadfast love and goodness, these weightier matters of the law, It makes that be the impulse of our hands and feet and of our mouths and minds and hearts. It's a a loving kindness. It's a reflection of God's character. And in the book of Micah, in chapter 2, verse 11, they weren't showing loving kindness. They were loving and going after wine and strong drink. They were going after disputes within their own family. In Micah 7, 6, we're told the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother-in-law the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are, the, are those of his own house. Ask the people you live with, family, roommates, if you would be considered a person who displays loving kindness. Depending on how they answer, that might be a much better measuring stick of your walk with the Lord than no matter how many boxes you may or may not have checked off that week. Let's go finally to humility. What does he mean there by walk humbly with God? Well, humility, we often say that's the opposite of pride. That's usually the easiest way to start a definition of humility. It's the opposite of pride. It's being brought low or modest or having an accurate estimation of oneself in light of who God is. It's keeping your thoughts fixed on him instead of your own ego and inflating your own view of yourself. Humility is combined with the word walk there because walk is that master metaphor in the Bible of your daily life, your daily doings. It it implies this forward progress. It's It's a way of living. Humility was not what Israel had at this time. In Micah 2, verse 3, they were told, You shall no longer walk haughtily, for this will be a time of judgment and disaster. God saw the haughty look of the way they lived their life, and he contended with it. They didn't walk humbly with God. In Micah 6.16, he says, You've kept the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab. You've walked in their councils, their pagan gods, their idols. That's what they were walking with, not humbly with God. Humility is something that, as Augustine, who lived centuries ago, said in his book, City of God, Humility and pride, what is pride, quote, what is pride except a longing for some kind of perverse exaltation, being fixed on oneself? For it is a perverse kind of exaltation to abandon the basis on which the mind should be firmly fixed and to become, as it were, based on oneself and so remain. This happens when a man is too pleased with himself. And as St. Augustine goes on, the, the second half of this quote is, is, is incredible. Now, it is good to lift up your heart and exalt your thoughts, yet not in the self-worship of pride, but in the worship of God. Obedience can only belong to the humble. 
There is something in humility to exalt the mind. This quote floored me when I saw this this week. Listen carefully to this. St. Augustine, who lived so long ago, said this. There is something in humility to exalt the mind and something in exaltation to abase it. Meaning pride. There's something in pride that abases the mind. It certainly appears somewhat paradoxical paradoxical, that the exaltation abases the mind and humility exalts, but devout humility makes the mind subject to what is superior. Nothing is superior to God, and that is why humility exalts the mind by making it subject to God. Are you walking humbly with God? I pray that these lessons would help you. Israel kept failing and fumbling. These lessons are not complicated and complex. They're simple, but they're demanding. We want to make sure that we're not deceived, thinking our secret sins can never be truly hidden. We want to make sure that we're repenting because God is going to confront sin, not if, but when. We want to remember the lesson that our sin actually reveals what we mistrust about God himself. It's a personal matter with God. We want to remember that redemptive history is our friend. We want to remember that a works-based salvation is your perennial foe. We want to remember that God's word really is sufficient. We want to remember that our joy and God's glory don't have to and shouldn't be at odds. We want to remember that our life is meant to be a 24-7 covenant relationship, not just a transactional thing with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you see how if we can remember that and learn from these mistakes Israel made, how much good that will do to our walk with the Lord? I pray that as we just endured such a crazy week, that this passage would help re-script and calibrate you to know, here's what God's wanting from you. Do these things, whether your power's out or your power's on. Do these things, whether your water's on or your water's off. Do these things so that you can reflect Christ. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Let's pray.